0: Welcome to the podcast that's dedicated to helping business owners prepare for exit, so you can maximize value and exit on your terms. This is the Exit Insights podcast presented by Succession Plus. I'm Daryl Bates brownsort and today I'm talking to Jim James. Welcome, Jim, and uh, thanks for joining us today.
1: Daryl, thank you for inviting me to be on the show. I'm looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, well, look, Jim. Look, we've had a couple of chats, and uh, um, interesting, you you live not too far from me, just down the road, but uh, That hasn't always been the case. You're a a Brit who ended off uh, wandering off abroad for a a number of years running your business, the exact opposite direction to me. Why don't you give us a bit of a background? You ran a PR back uh, business. You ran it in a number of countries. Where where did it start and where did it finish, I guess, is where we want to get to.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you and I crossed geographies, right? So I'm an Englishman who um, lived as a young man in, in Africa and also went to the States and studied there. And then in 1995, I went to Singapore to start East West Public Relations. So that was my first business venture, really. I was 27 at the time. So I started that business there, lived in Singapore until 2004, went to China to take a bit of time out and study some Chinese. And then went back to China in 2006 to start the offices of East-West Public Relations in Beijing. And while I was there, I met my wife and also um, had two amazing daughters. Also started a couple of other companies, so including importing Morgan sports cars to China and uh, started the British Business Awards in China and was the CEO for Lotus Cars in China for, for a little while. Also, while keeping the PR firm in Singapore, um, and in China, and also opened a PR office in India. Uh, 2019, came back to the UK. So that's my little history. And then in terms of the agency, sold the Singapore uh, operating company just last year to the next generation of, of PR leaders.
0: Okay. So so the first one was the PR agency. Um Moved to Singapore. Was there anything special about Singapore that um, attracted you to Singapore? Or or how did that come about?
1: Yeah, you know, Singapore really is a gateway to Asia. And, you know, in the early 90s, we had the Asian tigers of Thailand, Indonesia, Philippines, Vietnam. And Singapore is really at the center of that group of ASEAN countries. And, you know, Singapore is... Three hours of flight from nearly a th- nearly a third of the world's population, so you can get India and you can get to China, right? So geographically, it was fantastic, but also professionally and as an entrepreneur, Singapore is really Asia light because of the English language, the English rule of law, the airport is very easy to to manage. Um, so all in all, Singapore is a, really a great place to explore Asia and to explore starting a business.
0: Singapore's a great country. I I have heard it just, I've been there several times myself and but, but I've not worked there. But it feels like East meets West, isn't it? Um it's the best of both worlds.
1: Yeah, it and from a professional point of view, and I know, you know, for our listeners today that are business owners, um Singapore is a one of the Easiest places to start a business, one of the most transparent in terms of um, sort of accountability and contract law, banking and finance. And also, importantly, there's no capital gains tax. So if you are, you know, residing there as a permanent resident and you build a business, you sell a business, you get to keep it all. So it's brilliant as, a, as a, an entrepreneur's hub
0: okay and and it is known as an entrepreneur's hub,
1: isn't it? very much so, very much so and um, it's got a little bit more expensive, Daryl, in the last number of years um my friends now that have been there for a long time are starting to move to either to Bali or to Bangkok or even you know up to Ho Chi Minh and to Hanoi to Vietnam, so you know Singapore's become really a centre for now sort of wealthy people from all over the world actually. And that's driven up prices. So it's still a great place for all those reasons we've discussed. But now to do a business, you can be in Bali or in, uh, in Ho Chi Minh or Hanoi or Bangkok and get benefits of scale and lower costs um, that you know back in the 90s, Singapore had. Okay.
0: So a question is, as someone who grew up in the UK, Um, and all of your network and your contacts and relationships are UK-based, how hard was it to get started in what is primarily a relationship business, the PR industry? How hard was it to get started with, the, uh, I guess, the culture shock happening at the same time?
1: Yeah, you know, at the time in the early 90s, we didn't have, you know, the internet. Obviously, we had the beginnings of CompuServe, actually, and I used to dial up Australia on a 24K uh, modem. So, really, it was all about going and being. Um, for example, I joined the British Chamber of Commerce in Singapore. So there was a really a fantastic expat community in Singapore and the Southeast Asia still is. So it was a matter of just you know going out and meeting people, um, and no social media as I mentioned. So we just did a lot of you know events and uh, trade shows and so on. So actually, I was so excited and, and impassioned um about being in in my own business and about being an Asian frankly being out of the u k because in the in the early nineties, as you may remember um, you know the u k wasn't a great place to be we had high interest rates we'd had a kind of a recession after thatcher's boom um and let's not forget the English weather so you know having you know a pool in the apartment, get up at six thirty go for a swim at seven, you know be in the office at nine. It was—is that culture shock? No, darling. I was just—it all felt like just an amazing adventure, uh, and I loved it. Yeah, well, the early
0: nineties—I would just finished uh, uni and uh, it started life on uh, working as, as an engineer. So slightly different, but um, so. What about doing business in Asia? Was did, was was that any different to uh, yeah, Western
1: Western world? Well, although it's an old. Um, sort of saw about business in Asia. Really, relationships are are super important in Asia. And that's true amongst, you know, expats, but also as an expat living in Asia, doing business with with Asians in the market. So one of the key things really was about the importance of relationships. And, you know, people sometimes misunderstand, Daryl, why that is. One of the fundamental reasons that relationships in Asia are important, and in China, they call it Guangxi, is because the rule of law is not the same as it is for example in the uk so actually trust is a fundamental tenet of business in asia and that's built by people meeting each other because legal recourse or financial recourse isn't there it's got much better in the last decade but um doing business in asia has been very much about being there and the other dimension of doing business in asia is as a foreigner that many locals would expect you to leave, you know. And I was in Asia for twenty five years, and I would see so many companies come in to Singapore or when I was in China to China, and they would make big promises, and then the minute the business got hard, they would leave. And we saw this, especially, you know, we had the Asian we had the currency crisis when the Thai bar fell apart. We had we had SARS. We had Red Tide. Right, there were succession of times. Um, when business in Asia was really difficult. Some of us stayed, and those of us that stayed built relationships, but also reputation for being reliable that was key. So consistency and commitment to Asia uh, was key uh, for anybody going out there to do business. And I I think that's probably the same as it is, you know, if you're a foreigner coming to do business here, people want to know that they can trust you. Longer than the contract is going to take to expire.
0: Yeah. So we're we're following, I guess, normal business principles. You you've built a business up. You've built a business up in in a relationship heavy um, culture. You've how many people in your business at this stage? How many employees did you have? Yeah. So by
1: '97, you know, I'd been there since June 14th, '95. By the middle of 1997 I was up to 12 people so it was the largest one of the largest independent PR firms in Southeast Asia actually Hong Kong was the other big hub people yeah. were not doing anything in China until 2001 right so um I already had a you know expanded the team um well beyond my skill set I don't mind to tell you but I got more business and, and hired more people so you know we we're 12, 12 plus people.
0: Okay. So you've built this business in a in a relationship uh heavy culture, relationship based culture. <clears throat> Build a reputation and, and building that credibility of trust that, that you're gonna be um in the in the market in and around for a while. But at some point you you extracted yourself from the business. You still owned it at this stage, but you'd you'd extracted yourself from the business and if if I understood correctly, you picked up and ran with uh, other interests and, and started some other businesses in the in the region. So, ha- what what happened to the business, the PR business, once you started to extract yourself out of it? And and I guess what was the process of of um, I guess the thinking of keeping the business going and growing without your your daily input in an operational role?
1: Okay, so in ninety seven ninety eight, I realised that I was finding another business, and that was the provision of event information to all my clients because a big driver for PR were trade shows, conferences, and so on. So the business I started, Daryl, on the side, my side hustle was called goevents.com, and and I raised money actually for that business because in those heady days you could raise money. Uh, and I raised like a quarter of a million dollars on an 8 million valuation uh, off a of PowerPoint but I already had the beginnings of a content syndication model based on event listings. But I knew that I needed to make my PR business sustain without me before I could step out. Yeah. And the key is, as you know, Daryl, with what you're doing, you know, is that you have to build a couple of things. One is you have to build systems so that the business might have me as a as a brand ambassador, but it has systems when it comes to delivery. Yeah, my mantra became that I'd have a knowledge driven, geography independent company in the PR business, and so I built out a platform which put the entire business online. So this was a little bit early, but what what I actually did was I used ASP for the database, and I used um, um, a wiki platform and actually i built uh, what i called east west connect which was a platform that had all the media contacts or the client contacts or the media clippings and everything online and what that meant was that the team that came into the company were able to really access the wisdom of the entire organization i mean now we have you know whether it's uh, salesforce.com or or zoho or uh, monday or any of these other collaborative platforms but you know back then it was fairly early days for this kind of knowledge management so one part of it was to put in place a system literally a system that i built um that would enable anyone who joined the company to access the entire knowledge of the company that was the first part and the second part was about the remuneration for the people that then ran the company. So um what I did was to create at the time slightly overly complicated um sort of points system where people could earn money depending on not only what they did, but how well the company performed. So you know there were a number of points in the company and the shares got divided according to the number of points and, you know the longer people were there or the better they performed, they got points and that translated cash. So the idea, I, I spent a lot of time reading people like David Meister's book, Oh yeah, um, you know, David Meister um, and uh, actually he and I had some conversations. He's a brilliant guy. Um, you know, the trusted advisor he wrote um, as one of his books, but I really tried to work on a model that was almost like a, a law firm, a law practice, for example, an accounting practice where, where, the rewards were shared with the team. So the systems and the remuneration and the final part is the branding. And, you know, what I realized was that, you know, if I was the sole brand of the business, then I couldn't ever leave the business. I called the company East-West Public Relations rather than jim james pr because i knew that if it was jim james pr people would always want to see me and that you know that's not a bad thing uh but until you then, want to sell yeah it is if you want to sell the business you're trying to build a brand right not necessarily uh promote yourself so i built a brand under east west um pr and and really spent a lot of time on the website, but also on articles, on SEO, and I also built a lot of partnerships with PR networks around the world, so that the brand, the organization, became the magnet for a new business rather than me. So there were the systems, there was the remuneration, and then there was the brand. Okay. So so a couple of
0: key things that, that I'm I'm hearing from here is 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 first thing if if you want a business to a run without you 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 need to extract all of the the knowledge and and have it easily accessible and easily understood and then ideally uh, some sort of framework where you can train people in all the knowledge and as well as know how to access it so so we've got all of the knowledge in a central central system or hub or resource somehow that anyone can access. Now that means that any buyer can access the business as well. So that makes the business sustainable and and less dependent on the owner. So pretty savvy thing to do that early on in your your career. Then you you said hey um that the people are the key asset here. Let me uh, and and the Key thing I like what I think you were saying, make sure I understand it correctly, was I wanted to reward people for their success and not just the success in their job, but the contribution that the success that they do in their job makes to the overall business um, so that you know we're all aligned to the same things, which is business success rather than my job success. And that way, we, we've got some sort of, you know, we're de-risking it from a perspective of ensuring that the business is going to keep growing as a whole. And, and we've got a team-based culture rather than a me-based culture. Um, now, the other thing is, is, Jim, did you say that it was, you were just basically, uh, uh, if I simplify things, uh, it turned it into a profit share, but did you release or share any of the equity in the business at this point?
1: Uh, I didn't share the equity in the business. Um, I did share the performance of the company, though. Yeah. I was transparent about the books, which, you know, we're talking about the 1990s. This is a little bit radical to be doing that. I read sure. the, you know, Ricardo Semler, uh, Maverick. Uh, yeah, yeah.
0: It was he, he had another book with five something, wasn't it? Yeah, anyway.
1: So Ricardo Semler. Uh, wrote a book called uh, Maverick, and he inherited a business in, I want to say Argentina or Brazil. Um, And he, you know, he was very inspirational to me because he talked about, uh, you know, trusting your team. So I shared that, but I didn't share equity because equity is risk. And I offered people to buy into the company. But actually, most people couldn't afford to because they would rather have, you know, the money in their pockets. But also, most people didn't see themselves being in a business that long, right? And you sell equity to, to a member of staff, um, and they want a, either a profit share for that or a vote for that, or they want an exit at some stage. And so I had some uh, partners in Hong Kong who bought into the PR firm they were a member of, and actually... Daryl, it just created huge complications because there really wasn't an exit yeah. strategy. Um, sure. So then it was about valuation of the shares and so, so I decided that was too complicated. What people wanted was cash and, um, and I wanted control. So that's how I structured it. And the concept that you talk about um, earlier on is what uh, McKinsey calls the one firm firm. And this is something David Meister wrote about in his book about the concept that, you know, the company succeeds by individuals succeeding and individuals succeed by the company succeeding. And it was really important. I had strategy sessions every three months with the team and offsite. We used to go to, uh, you know, islands in uh, in the South China Sea or we went to some amazing sort of mangrove <laughs> swamp places. And, uh, but we discussed strategy, you know, and, and getting engagement from everybody on what we were doing was really, really key.
0: Yeah, and so again, it's it's about uh, aligning everyone so that their interests, everyone's interests, are aligned to the same outcomes. Um, which you know, yeah, you know, is sometimes people say we're all paddling in the same direction or or what have you. But yeah, and then and people were looking. Yeah, you, know, you talked about they wanting cash. Yeah, you know, people want to be part of something bigger than themselves. I find. And and they want to be recognised and, and acknowledged for for the efforts they they contribute and and you did that via cash, and and at the end of the day, yeah, you know, people underestimate the risk it takes to build a business and 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 uh, you you were able to address that as well. So so fair play. So the business is is evolving, it's growing. Your interest, you've you've managed to extract yourself operationally now. By the sounds of it, by by having these systemised. Uh, um, uh, methodology and thinking in place, and, and empowering—I think that was probably even the, the word of the day um, in the '90s—empowering people to to know what they're, they're meant to do, which freed you up to uh, chase other other interests and um, you know get some other businesses up and running. How often, when we see absent owners, you know, when the cat's away, the mice will play. The sort of sort of uh, approach I've seen business owners extract themselves from businesses <clears throat> and just live off the dividends, so to speak and and they think that once they've built the business that that uh, you know they'll be able to move into their retirement um, with with this mindset and all too often you know it works great for for two or three years, and then at some point the employees start to think, well, we're doing all the work, why are we doing all doing all this work?" All the the business growth is down to us they they get uh a certain uh their their perceptions change and think that they're doing all the work and and become disgruntled with doing all the work and all the profits being distributed to the to the owners How did you um avoid that or address that or cope with that if if that's what happened to you as well
1: yeah i think um absolutely great point and i I suffered at the hands of that it all it went fine for a while um and one of the lessons i learned is that as long as you are the shareholder you do need to at some stage whether it's quarterly monthly whatever still be turning up because especially in a service business people see themselves doing the work and quite quickly um, they see themselves as the business so what actually happened was i went to china to start the business there And, uh, I became a a dad, which is great, but as a result, I didn't travel as much. And in the end, one of the members of the team said, you know, um, and and this is actually really where I made one of my biggest mistakes. She said, you know, well, uh, that she wanted to buy the company. And, you know, I was, um, too, I don't know, proud, aggressive, I thought, well, I've started the business in Singapore. I've now got a business started in China. And, um, and I said, well, you know, I want to keep growing the business myself. You know, I think it's worth more. And as a result, she decided to leave and take a lot of the team with her. Yeah. So, you know, how would I have done that differently when she, you know, came to me and said she wanted to buy the business? with hindsight i should have said that's great because what i also know now after 25 years of running businesses is that buyers come along very few and far between right um and she had a vested interest she knew the business she knew the business and and she was um yeah let's face it they say well we're doing the business we're getting a salary and we're getting some profit actually they're getting a great salary getting a great profit share uh, but, at some stage, people then move up, if you like, Maslow's hierarchy becomes yeah. control, right, and so it wasn't money, it being enough anymore, it was about authority and about being seen to be in charge. I played that hand really, really badly, Daryl, you know, um because i I didn't really recognize my vulnerability, i mean the business actually survived we i I managed to go down and and triage the business but it really took the wind out of the sails and so i think that if i had had the time again i would recognize that if we liberate and train people because in effect this person had worked with me from arriving from india had kind of learn how to do budgeting, how to negotiate. Right. I mean, I'd really trained her how to be a great business owner. I, I was, I was too arrogant to go, you know, actually the next thing I need to do is let them go. I, I now need to, um, in sort of parenting terms, let them become an adult and take the business from me. So I kind of really, well, I did fail that, that test. Yeah. Uh, and at the time I was, Preoccupied with fatherhood and with China, and I and I starting a business in India, and I thought, wow, you know, I'm I'm going great guns, so I, I missed that that trick altogether. So I think the systems and the brand and the remuneration enabled the business to to continue, and you know, until you know, for another fifteen years, it carried on, right? Um, so the systems that I put in place actually made the business uh resilient but from a from an equity and a, and a business leadership perspective i should have recognized that once you've created and empowered people to run a business you, you the opportunity actually that i if i'd known you back then I, i'd have known how to do this properly right i'd known the conversation to have about well let's talk about how we do that exit You know, I, I was, I didn't know how to do that conversation. So, so I absolutely failed that test. Um, But I think that um, as we go forward, if we do empower people and show them how business works, we have to be prepared for them to either buy the company or to set up their own company, because that is the, the trajectory, but If you don't do it this way, you'll always be a parent in the business, you know, and as, and for those of us that are parents, you know, your children need to leave home at some stage, right? Your role is to help grow them, not to control them. And I only realize that now, Daryl, you know, and at the time I didn't, but that is the inevitable consequence of the management strategy that I took.
0: Yeah. Well, the thing is, Jim, I think... what we get to the point of understanding is as entrepreneurs, we, we make a truckload of mistakes. And, you know, if we could capitalize financially on every learning we've made from our mistake, uh, it'd be a wonderful thing. So you made yeah. And, and in hindsight is always, always wonderful. You know, your, your confidence was sky high, your, know, your, your, your employees confidence, you know, after being trained so well, her confidence was sky high. Um, and, and it sounds like a classic, uh, you know, late teenager and, and parent clash. Um, yeah. yeah, almost. In <laughs> yeah, and, yep. um, and then, you know, once your kids do leave home, it's great having them back. You love it when they come back and visit and uh, have dinner and what have you. But uh, so, so the business kept on. I think you mentioned like another 15 odd years. So during that 15 years, we're, we're now getting to the point where you're, it, you're running it via remote control by the sounds of it. How often did you touch it and revisit and what sort of involvement did you have over those those 15 years?
1: Yeah, so, so Darrell, what I did was I uh, had moved from Singapore to China in 2006 Yep, and kept the Singapore business. Uh, the India business was a bit of a false start. So people applied to r- run the business and we, we did the legal and so on, but it became a bit of a, a money pit, to be honest. Uh, anyone that's ever tried to do business in India will, will know how, how time-consuming that is as a market. Um, one of the best practices that I have learned was through Vern Harnish, and I'm sure you know scaling up. Yeah, And, you know, Vern Harnish is an amazing chap. You know, he started the EO organization, you know, the Entrepreneurs' Organization, and I I had the good fortune to meet Vern in Beijing, and I started... With a good mate called Rich Robinson, we started the EO chapter in Beijing. And what I learned from Vern and the scaling up was about uh, data and priorities and rhythm, and that routine sets you free. So, yep. what I did with the team um, initially, I did a daily huddle with everybody, and then when I moved out, I got to do a weekly huddle, a Friday huddle, which is, you know, key tasks, successes and learnings, uh, and then quarterlies. So, you know, Vern's scaling up practice, and I'm sure some other people have now sort of got iterations of that, but this idea of consistency, um, whether it's daily or weekly or quarterly uh, or monthly, but also knowing what we were tracking. So we had a dashboard, you know, number of clients, you know, billable hours, capacity, um, you know, obviously cash flow, um, number of clippings, number of press releases being sent out. So I had a kind of a dashboard that was applicable to each company, um, each agency. So I could see, you know, if things were, were happening. So I think sometimes it's a mistake, Daryl, that people think that they're, they own a company, not day to day in the company. It, it doesn't, you know, unless you're just a shareholder, right. And there's a management team in place. Yeah. It doesn't mean you can release yourself from the well-being of the company. It just means that you need to have some controls and some levers. And Vern Harnish's um, scaling up, you know, he has a sort of a dashboard, you can change that, is a really good control uh, uh, framework, I think. So so you, you you got a mechanism now
0: for taking the pulse of the business you know you've extracted yourself from an operational role but you you weren't you know a, a, a vacant you weren't you know, uh, disappeared altogether you're still present in the business they they're aware of you of your involvement you are just not required on an operational role and and that's critical to business owners who want to maximize the value of the business and uh uh you know where 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 do you see a lot of um, small to medium businesses? The business owners are are critical in either sales roles um, or delivery roles. They're the most expensive person, most experienced person in the delivery of whatever their product is, which makes them key people operationally in the business, um, which is great for their ego, but not great for their valuation. Yeah. So you're now operating the business via remote control. You you get a sense, you get a pulse. Um, you're running like this for for a number of years. What happened for you to decide now it's time for me to extract myself fully from an equity perspective from the business? In other words, sell it. What happened and and what was the process for identifying the valuation and and how did that go?
1: Yeah. So Daryl, 2019 moved back from China and to the UK, and I ran. Uh, east west public relations uk i set up a a new business here and then was corresponding with the guys in in singapore and really um a couple of things one was a sense that my life in asia was wonderful but i needed to build a life here in europe and so i recognized that my knowledge and my wisdom about asia was on a half-life yeah so whilst i was an expat in asia you know I, I was one of the kind of the the few expats who knew tech and media in Asia. I knew a few other things, but you know in Beijing, I was one of the only you know foreigners that was doing this in Singapore as well. But based in Wiltshire, um what do I know about the trends in Singapore? What do I know about you know what's happening in Thailand? I, I used to go to these places right I used to meet people so so I felt that my my value was on a half-life. Every day I was away, Asia was moving on and I was not. So I saw long-term that I needed to do something that that reflected where I wanted to be, not where I have been. Then I did some work for some clients, including like Ineos Grenadier, the new car. And I launched that in Indonesia, Vietnam and Thailand. It was great, but it meant being up, you know, six o'clock in the morning. And uh, one of the things I've um, always done is take my children to school. And I drive them to school, ridden them to school, pushed them to school ever since they were toddlers uh and i couldn't do that uh when I was trying to be on the phone from sort of six in the morning through till eleven in Asia, so I decided it was it wasn't in alignment with my my life values and where I wanted to be so those are the realizations and then in although you know financially it was great because actually you know you can make money in Singapore. Uh, arbitrage the costs you could sell in the uk and the us so commercially it was great but from an emotional practical point of view it wasn't in terms of um what i then did was i i put the word out informally through my network that's still in southeast asia and actually a woman who used to work for me who worked for me in 97 uh through uh 2008 and then Uh, worked with me again from like 2019 through till 2022. Um, Grace, her name is. Uh, I asked her, I said, you know, do you know anyone? And I asked my accountant and I asked some people in in the media business. And and one of the young men who had worked with me a decade ago uh, had an ambition to start an agency, um, but didn't really have all of the skill sets for brand building and finance and operations and building partnerships and all the things I had in place, Darrell, And he had a a friend who also wanted to start an agency. And um, so we got chatting about, you know, them basically taking over the agency because I had all the infrastructure. I had the things that would take them, frankly, years to build. I had brand, you know, bank account. I had to partners all over the world, that existing client base. And so it really made sense for us to to find a way for them to take it over. Your second question was about valuation. You know, the first thing I really do is I ask them what they could afford because I've had a great run with East West Public Relations, and one of the lessons I learned from that experience all those years ago when when this woman offered to buy the company, and I had a price, and she had a price and we were a long way away, the question I should have asked was you know what does she want to pay for it you know uh, and as business owners, we get our egos involved in what we think the business is worth, <clears throat> it's only worth what someone's willing to pay for it and because of these objectives I had you sort of financially but also socially and morally, um, it was as important to me to pass the business on as it was to optimize the price because more than one business, as you know, has died on the vine. So I really said to the guys, what can you afford? We looked at the, at the turnover and then I, then I structured it, which is obviously important for this, this um, conversation. I structured it with a, where they bought a hundred percent of the company at the beginning with a small down payment. Right. And then I said, you know, it's important that you own hundred percent of the equity at the beginning. So it's your business. It's not my business and you're doing an earn in it's your business. You become directors. And I, that meant I had to trust them all the way back to trust right there. I had to trust them to do that. I said, you guys that own all the shares. You're the directors. You give me a deposit. And then here's a 24 month payment schedule. And I structured it so that. If they paid the loan, if they paid, you know, this quicker, it was cheaper. And if it was over 24 months, it would get more expensive. So I made, I put a premium on, on time. Yep. And so we, we really structured a deal that they could afford where basically they used the business to buy the business. Sure. Because they didn't have the cash, but they have the potential.
0: So, you created a deal that worked, you know, and met your requirements, what you wanted as an outcome, your goals and aspirations, you worked for them. You left the business is still going, you've left a legacy, um, and you created a deal that worked for everyone all of the place. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And I think just, just to, I think your point about maximizing the valuation, I think that uh, can I use the word optimize the valuation? Because, you know, maximize implies you can get the most price, but actually it's not just about money. Is it, it's about, um, the role that you can play. Uh, so I'm chairman for 12 months. It's about being able to pass on the clients that we had, the relations we've got. So I would say it's a, you know, it's an overall, a portfolio of, of of benefits to think about. If you think about it just as the price, uh, then I think you might be inclined to do a deal or even not get a deal um, because you're so worried about the ticket. You're not thinking about the other things. So
0: you've you've created everything. You've 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 created a deal that worked for both parties. Um, and the, the the framework of the deal was such that you know everyone was happy and, and it worked. Um, So in your scenario, some because some business owners are really keen on just going, I want to get the most out of this business as I can. And other business owners are going, hey, look, I want to leave a legacy. And yeah, there's a whole lot of range of options in between. So it's now to 2019. We're now 2023. You gave them a two-year head start. There was a penalty if they took more than two years. What happened? Where where are we at?
1: Yeah, now, so... um... Raymond um, and Naveen are doing a brilliant job of running the business, right? So payments are coming in on schedule. And, um, you know, we did a handover, um, obviously, over time to them, training introductions and so on. Raymond's been to the UK to a partner meeting with a a group of public relations uh, agencies that I've been a partner with for 20 years. And he's taken over that relationship. Um, And the brand, um, is moving into some slightly different spaces where they want to take it, which is great. And they're working on a brand refresh on a, on a new website. Uh, and, um, it's, you know, it's, it's a really wonderful because the vehicle that I built that has generated income for me for 25 years is now generating income for the next generation of, of entrepreneurs. So it's fantastic. And the business lives on. And the brand is on which you know from a personal point of view, you put in so many years into a brand and a business it's it's wonderful um and also uh, there's a continuity in the marketplace uh which is also kind of special um, so yeah, I think that overall the the decision to leave a business or to exit a business really has to be approached with some humility because as I learned you know when I actually it was the second time someone offered to buy into the business. The first time I, I kind of overpriced it the second time I overpriced it. And the third time I went, you know what? It's worth a lot to me, but I need to listen to what it's worth to somebody else. True. And they're not always the same thing, but the opportunity cost of being in a business, Daryl, that you, that you don't want to be in is very high. Right. So the way I looked at it was that if I'm not in that business and I might not get as much money, but if I've got the time, to build a new business or do something else then that's where the real value comes from in exiting the business
0: so jim i really appreciate you spending time with us and and, and sharing this story because as clearly it's clearly it's one that's got deep um, i guess emotional connection to you and, and 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 that came out in our conversation so if i can ask you just one more question and 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 i think i know what it is the answer is but But what's the one key message from this conversation and the story that you've shared with us today? What's the one key message you really want other business owners to take away from from your experience?
1: I think it would be to understand what your life is going to be on the other side of the business that you're currently running. We can be in a business and be so wrapped up, as you said earlier, Daryl, to be the key man or key woman. And to get our ego involved in that role and to identify ourselves in that role. But if you want to find new ways to challenge yourself, to be with people that you love, to stay fit and healthy later on in life, having this in your mind's eye makes it so much easier to let go of the business that you've built and loved. So... If there's a key message, it's about understanding what you'd like to do with your life that's outside of the business because once you've understood that and seen how valuable that is, you can see your own business within the context of your overall life life plan and the and the people that you live and love with um, and that I think would be my my key message. So think about what life could be for you on the other side of owning your business.
0: That's that's such a powerful uh, uh, observation there, as because we know that entrepreneurs, if they know what's next, if they've got a vision about what they're moving on to next, they'll run to it, and and it'll make the exit a whole lot easier. Jim, thanks for for sharing your exit insights with us. It's a powerful story, uh, and and an experience that that, uh, that a lot of business owners go through and experience.
1: Daryl, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. I don't, to be honest, get many chances to talk about the East West story. And uh, I think it's a, it's a success story. It's not a massive, you know, huge uh, business, but it's the kind of story that I think hopefully will resonate with, with people listening today that it's possible to build a business and to find a way for it to carry on and you to carry on both successfully but independently. Thank you for inviting me to share that. Jim James, thanks. Daniel, thank you for having me on the show.